Welcome to Fat Muscle Project, your home for building your best physique. Hey, what's up, everyone? Welcome back to the Fat Muscle Project podcast. I'm John Gorman, your host. We've got Cliff Wilson in the house back again. Cliff, what's going on, man? How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Busy as usual. I think we both are these days. Yeah, busy as a uh, it's a good thing, man. It's we've got a, a hell of a topic to talk about today. There's so many different pathways that we can take on it. We're going to get to that. But first, I'd like to start off. Has, has anything new happened with you in the last week or two? Anything cool that you've learned that you like to pass along? I always like to start the show off with that kind of a little update on you, if you don't mind. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, I've probably put too much on my plate uh, for a while, but um, I, uh, I I would say the biggest thing that I've been working on is going to be, uh, depending on when this release is going to be happening soon, um, I'd always been asked, because I, I don't always have enough time to take on everybody that wants to work with me, and I don't work with a lot of Gen Pop people, so I'd always been asked if I have like coaches under me that had learned from me. And, um, and, uh, I finally went ahead and did that and took on some coaches underneath me, uh, along with, um, Austin Paulson, who, uh, is somebody that I had mentored and has become a good coach in his own right. So, yeah. uh, us together kind of started a coaching team and, um, you know, being able to, we brought on different coaches that have like different specialties. Like we have some people that are specialized in contest prep. Um, uh, we have some people that have worked with like people for FBI and police academy training type of things like that. Um, some just like gen pop or even like younger populations. Um, so yeah, I, I, I'm excited to get that out. We've actually been doing it kind of quietly behind the scenes. We haven't really announced it just to get our, our ducks in a row, but i um, finally going to be introducing everybody uh, here in the next couple of weeks, which I'm, I'm excited about. That's awesome, man. That's, that's huge. You know, any, anytime, you know how it is. It's, it's about how do you service as many people as possible in the right way and get them taken care of. And it's creating jobs. Like that's the other thing, like it's creating jobs, but it's also helping people because we can't ever get enough good coaches out there helping people. So I'm excited to see your, your team kind of do their thing. Yeah. Well, you know, and one thing that's um, I, I I'm glad to do this uh, multiple things, like you said, always need more good coaches. Um, also coaches at different price points because, you know, some, you know, price points are all over the place in the coaching sure. industry. So, you know, find different coaches to pe fit people's budget. Also, there are a lot of great coaches out there uh, that sometimes they don't want to handle the business end of things. You know, they don't want to always be, you know, doing a ton of Instagram stories and, you know, all the, all the things that you have to do to market yourself as a coach. And um, sometimes they just want to coach. Yeah. <laughs> so um, kind of doing this, allows people you know I, I found some people that are more interested in just coaching and they're like i don't want to constantly having to be advertising myself i just want to coach and do good work for my clients and work with clients and i'm like hey that's a perfect fit you know we can just do that I I, it, I, so i'll be honest with you I, i'll be honest with you i think you and i probably fall in that category too i think you and yeah. i always do kind of more of the, the bare minimum of the extra business side of things we're like can we just work with the clients and keep it going <laughs> yep i i do not like social media i do everything i do i do because i like it like these podcasts for example like i enjoy this but do i look forward to having to post and make sure you stay relevant and like puts i like to post when a client does well and you want to give them a shout out but i don't like having to do the business side of coaching because you feel like you have to do it um but unfortunately part of that's just 
part of it for some people. So yeah, it's, it's going to be cool to watch that, watch that grow for you real quick. The only thing new that I have to pass along, um, we're going to be dropping a lot of these podcasts. We've got a bunch of special guest hosts coming on because I am looking for a co-host, somebody to come on and pretty much run the show. And I've got four people coming on to guest co-host. You guys are going to get a lot more content here really soon. As a matter of fact, I have another podcast to record right after this with E. Ramey. So that's that's going to be good. Then we've got Jeff Sue next week, and we've just got a bunch of, of people coming on. So that's going to be good. By the time this drops, we will have – so we've already got subscriptions up. So if you guys buy the supplements anywhere on the website, you can now subscribe. You can get – Hormone optimizer sent to you every four weeks if you want. So people have asked for that. If you guys want, we haven't announced it yet, but it's up on the site. We just turned it on so you can go subscribe there. And we've got two new proteins dropping here in about 10 days. And one is a natural protein no one else is doing on the market. No one else is making one. So we've got one and I'll tell you half of it's chocolate and I can't tell you what the other half is, but it's going to be awesome. And then we have another blended protein. So you know, enough, enough about business and fat muscle and stuff like that. Let's, let's get into the show. Cliff, this is something to where I feel like, you know, I remember a decade ago, we were still the, you know, not newer, but the younger guys, you know, we, there were still some older people around. Now I feel like we're the old guard um, because we've been doing this for so long and we've seen so many coaches come and we've seen them go and we don't see somebody not only sticking around but continuing to advance like they're they're not continuing to evolve and i think that's kind of the theme for the day and i want to center all this on you and what you've seen so i want to talk about the evolution of change since basically around the 2008 time frame for you if you don't mind just explain why thinking outside the box has been so important to you? Like what, what has been so crucial about that to you? And what have you seen in the industry with other coaches that don't really like to take that approach? Because you know how it is. A lot of them, they, they see change or they, they think outside the box. They like to stick to one way. How's that been crucial to you since you started? Yeah. You know, it's funny. And I'm sure you got this lot because, uh, you know, when we first started, my, I coached my first client really in like uh, one, I coached like one to the stage in 2009. And then I really got started with things in 2010. And I, you and I weren't the most welcomed people when we first uh-uh. started. Um, you know, and it's not the case now. But when we first started and the thing that we would always get, I don't know about you, but I would always get is like sometimes I would get people, I would be doing things differently and I would get coaches saying, I've been doing things this way for 25 years and it's been working. And I'm thinking to myself, you haven't changed anything in 25 years. Like you've not questioned yourself in 25 years to think, "Mm, maybe I should be doing this a little bit better. Um, So first off, I think that like, if you engage in any sort of self-analysis process, you should find things over the course of a career that you're like, man, maybe I should try this or maybe I should be doing this differently. I mean, it's 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 just a process of I think thinking outside the box is really a process of self improvement. You know, it's like you always should be questioning yourself. Um, and to be honest with you, it's kind of like what I owe most of my career too. I think that there have been several things. There have kind of been several defining points in my career where I feel like I've been able to get the edge on other coaches because um, I tend to be doing something a little bit different than they are and it kind of makes me early in in that regard like i mean if i if i have to pinpoint a few things i think one of the earliest things i did differently was was peaking 
Yeah. You know, I did peaking a little bit differently. I think um, also, I think you and I both were ahead of the game in terms of just honestly, just pushing fat loss limits. Um, you know, everybody, when we first started coaching, everybody was stopping once you saw faint glute lines yeah. and we were like, how deep can we get them? Right. <laughs> um, but you know, uh, I think that I was, I was kind of early on like removing hit from cardio usage. I was, kind of, I think I was kind of early on, on removing powerlifting from my training for, for, for athletes, for my bodybuilders, I should say. Yeah. Um, and so it's like, I try to always think outside the box and try different things. And that, you know, the thing is, it wasn't like I just spotted these things immediately and ran with them. I tried other things that didn't work. You know what I mean? Sure. But like when you try things, eventually you come across things that work and either you, you know, either you, you can kind of go at it one of two ways. You try things and it works. And then you sort of like go back and reverse engineer it. Like scientifically speaking, why does this work? Or you can look at something and be like, this, this would probably work because this, this, and this, you know what I mean? Yeah. You can kind of come at it from one of two ways. And we're going to dive into a bunch of different examples with training, with I'm sure nutrition and peak, whatever you want to talk about. I specifically want to say now that we're in 2023, we can look back on that 2010 timeframe all the way up to like 2014. To, to me, I want to zone in on one little thing. When we first started, we also started to see the rise of the quote unquote evidence-based coach. And we saw a lot of people that were new to coaching and what they would do is listen to a lot of the current research that was out there. And if what you were doing in the coaching world wasn't proven by research, you automatically got ridiculed, negative things were said, you're constantly being questioned and having to explain, and there's lots of arguments and things of like that. So I want to, I want you to remember that time frame, right? Yeah. Because honestly, you, when you first came on, you did a lot of stuff that was backed by research and we didn't see a lot of that. And I think you kind of helped uh, usher some of that in. I was completely different. I was mostly half bro, still am mostly half bro. <laughs> I looked at some of the research, but I tried a lot of stuff just in the trenches to see what I could find out. But you kind of ushered that in, but you also bucked the trend. And that's that's what I want you to really think about. What was that like when you did want to do things a little bit differently and they weren't proven by research and everyone wanted to go out there and argue with you? What was that like? Well, it is funny. You and I, you were on more on the bro side and I was more mm -hmm. on the like scientific evidence-based side. And I think yeah. you and I have both come more towards the middle over the years. Exactly. Um, yeah. But we landed in the same spot. But, you know, it, it's kind of funny. You know, I, I heard um, the 3DMJ guys say they were kind of like imploring their audience to be like, hey, guys, evidence-based also means anecdotal evidence. Yeah. <laughs> I remember, I remember like, I was like, that's a great point, you know. Um, but yeah, I, I did really start to fight against it for a few reasons. Um, one, because uh, sometimes people were treating the scientific research like uh, like biblical texts. Yes. It's not to be questioned. It's not to be questioned. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, and that automatically is problematic. You know what I mean? Um, and then the other thing is like, um, I am, you know, just because I was going against things and still do that are against, um, what I would say are scientific consensus. It does not mean that I am anti-science I'm for science, but sometimes my interpretation of the data is different. Mm -hmm. Um, and can I give an example? 
um, I think you remember I was into the, you know, when I first started coaching, I was all for the, um, the insertion of like powerlifting into bodybuilding training. Yep. Um, it what was the name of that training me. program? What, what was the name of the training program um, that you did? It was very popular. Power, power block periodization. Yep. Yep. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, it made sense to me because progressive overload is a, you know, the way we build muscle, we, we overload and powerlifting, like the whole thing centers on progressive overload. And so of course that made sense, you know, and, um, and then, but over the course of time, it just seemed like the volume that I could pack in to a training program was significantly reduced when we did very heavy reps, yeah. um, you know, and, and powerlifting, you know, heavy compounds in particular. And so I was like, this isn't working. This doesn't make sense. Um, and I was like, you know, why? And, and so then the funny thing was, oh, I can't remember the year. Brad Schoenfeld put out a study. So I'd backed away. Well, I'll put it, I'd backed away from powerlifting, including it, at least at least heavily into my 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 training programs because I just I didn't think it made sense. Um, I thought that the heavy reps were inducing way too much um, way, way too much central nervous system fatigue. Yeah, and 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 also let's just talk about like lower body heavy physiques. Um, but you know, and so when we get into like interpretation of the data, I don't even remember if you, you know if you remember this, uh, but do you remember around that time, 2013 or 14, Brad Schoenfeld did a study um, where he compared seven sets of three uh, to three sets of 10. So he had one group, seven sets of three to three sets of 10. Volume was equated and the results showed equal growth on both ends. And the powerlifting evidence-based group was like, Hey, see powerlifting works for hypertrophy. Um, but this is like my interpretation of the data was, you know, people don't extrapolate results very well. Sometimes um, when you go, when you actually went in and read the study and you read the notes of the study, the seven sets of three group, first off, many of them dropped out due to injury. Uh, the other thing was the seven sets of three group reported feeling very tired and run down and beat up by the end of the study. Mm-hmm. The three sets of 10 group were fresh and wanting to do more work. Um, so which one of these groups do you think has the ability to add more work to their program? It's the three sets of 10. Yeah. So it's like, once again, interpretation of the data. Yeah. The results showed the same amount of growth, but, interpretation of that is that this group the three sets of 10 has more room to add um and so uh you know i I don't even know if you remember but i wrote an article probably around like 2014 or 2015 called why powerlifting is killing bodybuilding i remember exactly yeah i remember the debate on the post actually on social yeah and people didn't like it but now everybody's like oh you know it it makes sense because and then i even um used some bfr training to like show that like high reps might be the way to go Mm-hmm. Um, you know, cause they, they've even done studies occluded and not occluded showing that the growth was similar between those. So it might just be the high reps, that's, the high rep scheme that's doing it. Um, and I've kind of even like traveled further in the last several years of like going down that path. I still, don't get me wrong. I still use, I think heavy weight and low reps have their place in a lot of people's programs, but I think that high reps are more valuable and underutilized for most bodybuilders. I 
Man, I love that. You know, speaking of Brad Schoenfeld, good friend of ours, he's he's been involved with the Physique Summit and numerous podcasts, just one of the great minds um, when it comes to research, especially for muscle gain. He put out the research, I can't remember what year it was, just comparing heavy reps to very, very high reps, as long as the high reps were taking failure and show, you know, it showed that muscle gain was about the same. And to me, it really was an eye opener. I'm a gigantic fan of high reps and the older that you get, right? So like a lot of my older clients, myself personally, I'm a big, big fan of being able to use that as a tool. So that's really kind of when the light switch went off for me. The earlier study that you're talking about, I wasn't I don't think I was aware of in 2013. I wasn't looking that much into it, but I was paying, I was paying attention to your stuff. And I remember I had a lot of people that were doing programs based, based around squat, bench, deadlift, usually multiple times a week. And I can tell you, and you've even had clients as well. We both had clients to where there we've, we've done their programming for them that way. And when they were just training as bodybuilders years before they came to us, then they wanted to do their off seasons, right? And they did it all based around more of a powerlifting type approach. And then we've dieted them for stage. They didn't necessarily look better. I, I've got clients that didn't weigh as much on stage. Their bodies didn't look like they did when they were only training in a bodybuilding type split. And I know that's kind of hard to say, but you know, um, when did when did you know a hundred percent for sure? Was it seeing stuff like that? Was it seeing athletes get on stage? that have devoted so much time to powerlifting in their programming that didn't look as good. Um, was that really the final nail in the coffin or, or, or what do you think when you start to see some of that? You know, to be honest with you, it was probably my own, my, my first, my first, first, it started to hit me around 2014, I would say until late 2013, early 2014. Um, it was my own progress. I took three years from 2010 to 2013 in an off season. I competed in 2010 and then again, 2013 and man, I put so much effort into it and I, I improved, but really not as much as I thought I should have for the effort and diligence that I put in. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I always say, so sometimes, sometimes people, um, <laughs> sometimes people, applaud my um the, the word that you often use is humility to like change my mind and like you know um the, to change my mind when i when i'm when i'm wrong yeah. um and one thing i i always tell them to be honest with you it's probably it's not my humility it's my ego i want to be right so badly that i will switch to the winning team immediately <laughs> it's, not, it's not it's not the, it's not, it's not my humility that's getting me there i'm like yeah i got you know my ego wants to be as right as possible and i'm like hey i'm jumping to this side um yeah. so um after my 2013 show i was already catching hints of it right just the way like in my own training when I would do a heavy squat or deadlift or bench press day, um, I mean, you couldn't train as hard for a day or two. Do you know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like, I remember like I would get to arms the following day and it would just be like, there was no gas in the tank. Yeah. Um, you know, so that was, that was, uh, that was a, a first sign to me. And then I did start to notice my clients were, you know, it's like I hesitate to say their physiques after certain off seasons were. I hesitate to say worse, but they were different, right? Yeah. Lower body heavy, impressive lower bodies, 
usually up near the hip flexor area, upper quad area, but it wasn't your traditional bodybuilding look. And I had a couple of people get beats where they lost to someone that had a more inflated upper body, traditional bodybuilding look, you know? Yeah. Uh, and kind of like a, I mean, kind of if I had to compare physiques, like, you know, I was putting people on stage with more of a Franco Colombo look and they're getting beat by Schwarzenegger's, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And so it's like, you know, um, a little bit more blocky-ish type physiques. And so I was like, you know, this isn't producing the results that I wanted. And then along with my own like effort. So then I just kind of tried it out with myself. Like, hey, what if I just like, I went through periods where I just removed squats and deadlifts entirely. And I was like, man, the energy I had, to train like i mean little things like the energy i had to do dumbbell lateral raises you know right. it's like and which is is such a necessary movement for a bodybuilder and i have much more energy to do i, I mean I, I i'll take four sets of a dumbbell lateral raise for a bodybuilder over four sets of deadlifts any day mm-hmm. um and so it's like you know i mean it was it was off to the races and it doesn't mean i don't ever include it like sometimes you have clients that actually need to bring up their lower body in a very significant way and in which case power lift away for a little while you know what i mean like yeah. put, put a couple of strength building programs in there um you know maybe not as much as i used to do but um you know i, I think a powerlifting phase is useful for people that really need to bring up their lower bodies but i don't think um the majority of people need that i agree 100 percent, and i think people need to realize we're talking about a bodybuilding type approach we're talking about somebody that wants to have a very symmetrical physique we're talking about the the most round look that you can get um on stage or someone just likes that look in the off season like we're talking we're not talking about gen pop we're not talking about people that are interested in strength sports we're talking specifically about bodybuilding so i want to make sure our listeners understand that's what we're trying to talk about and create it's a very different thing there's so many different ways to train out there um cliff let me what would you say to our listeners now because here's the thing we have a lot of people that come to us as mentors. Um, I have people spend an hour on the phone with me all the time. Like I do one hour consults for like 300 bucks. They want to run every little thing by me. And I tell them all the time, you need to not be fucking scared to go out and try some new shit just because the research isn't there, just because the most well-known coaches in the world aren't talking about it. You need to not be scared to go out and try some stuff and think for yourself do you still have a lot of people reach out to you and almost feel like they need to get the okay? Like they're, they're too scared to try things out because you said that we weren't the most popular people when we first came on. It's because we were doing a lot of shit like this. We didn't care what some of the most renowned coaches were saying at the time. Do you, do you get that from your people that come to you for help? Yeah. Yeah. I I think that's a tough spot. And sometimes I, I, I tell people like, First off, you can give yourself license to try anything you want. You know what I mean? Like, don't put people in danger, of course. But, you know, um, you know, you can try things, uh, you know, as long as your client is on board with it. Cool. Uh, And you can try it on yourself. I usually try things on myself first. Um, But uh, I, I think that I think that the concern of, like, taking the heat is is problematic. But I do always tell them like, hey, if you're going to speak about it, you know, if you're trying to buck what is popular trend, you're going to invite some heat onto yourself. You're going to have people angry. You're going to have people debating you. 
Um, and you got to be mentally prepared to stand up to that. I mean, uh, I mean, when I wrote the powerlifting article, I mean, some of the biggest names came out with rebuttals to me. Um, and you know, uh, and, and the funny thing is I remember even the rebuttals didn't even have like any flaws in the logic that I laid out. Um, and you know, the, the, when I did things differently with peaking, some of the biggest names came after me too. And so it's like, I think that, you know, you gotta be, you gotta ask yourself, you know, if you want to try things and you want to speak about it, you got to muster up some bravery and just, you know, stand by what you actually believe. Um, don't back down. And, you know, it, it, there's a, there's a price to pay, you know, people are going to not like it. Anytime somebody tries to do something differently, they're not going to like it. And, and a lot of the time it's just going to go because it, it makes people question the way they've been doing things like the people that want to argue, uh, you know, when you start to put out flexible dieting back in the day, that that's a perfect example, right? Anyone that, hated flexible dining a lot of the times they hated it because it started to catch so much fire and get so much attention that yeah. their clients were coming to them being like hey cliff john albert Berto, <laughs> who it doesn't matter right they're all these names like they're all dieting their people and they're shredded and you're making me eat fish and <laughs> fucking green beans at four of my meals and a lot of the times they just wanted to argue because it upset the balance there so i mean it's it's one of those things to where you're right. You have to muster up courage. Um, and for a new coach, sometimes that's, that's hard. I do want to talk about, we're going to get back to peaking because I think that's, that's an important one in nutrition approaches, but you made a really good post on Facebook and that's what actually inspired this podcast. I reached out and said, Hey, we should do a podcast on this. You made a post, uh, featuring, uh, Ryland Burns. Okay. And how things are just different now with your approaches to training. What do you want to highlight about that post? What what was so important that you wanted to mention him and bring him up in a post? Yeah, R Ryland made good, great off-season progress. And, you know, I, I, a couple of things kind of inspired me to start posting more off-season progress photos of clients. Because I realized over the years, I've kind of gotten a reputation as more of a nutrition guy. Right. Um, and it's funny because I, I, I love training and I speak out about it a lot, but, um, I think people are some reason bodybuilders are a little bit more reticent to defer to someone else when it comes to outside the box training, because I think most bodybuilders at least consider themselves much more, um, knowledgeable in the realm of training than they do of diet. So right. I'll say that I think that's one of the reasons, um, but you know, there's a couple of reasons I started with, I, I started with Ryland and started really like focusing on getting training out there again, because one, I had health issues the last four or five years now. can't believe it's been that long, uh, like four years now. And so it's like, when I was not feeling well, um, I'd been doing, I started already doing things a little bit differently with training. And when I wasn't feeling well, I didn't feel like energetic enough feisty enough to like argue with people like right. we were talking about right yeah. you know sometimes i would post progress pictures of people and i would post a little bit about what i was doing and you know you you spot the people coming on ready to argue you know what i mean they'd be like you know sometimes you get people at genuinely asking questions and then you get other people over there coming on they're like well you know you do this <laughs> i for the for the few years that i wasn't feeling well i would sometimes just respond i don't feel the need to explain myself <laughs> they hated that too by the way um but uh you know i i so now i'm i'm healthy again and i'm ready to argue for 
So anybody want to bring wants to bring it on. Um, the 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 training stuff. Okay, so the 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 general popularity has kind of gone away from powerlifting type training, and now um, there's this like uh, this current movement is like really focused on this. The, the, it's better, right? You know, it's focused more on like RPE scales, um, volume recommendations. And it's focused on, um, you know, a variety of rep ranges, which are all good things. I would say these are all very good general recommendations, but often I kind of feel like, um, things are, people are focused as usual on the wrong things. Um, like, you know, a lot of the current research is showing like, uh, the general recommendation of you'll get good results with eight to 15 sets per week. And it's like, yeah, that's a good general recommendation. But when you go into the data table, it's like some people are losing muscle on that. Some people are gaining massive amounts and some people aren't gaining at all. You know, it's like um, the individual differences are so vast that it's like these general volume intensity recommendations are so pointless. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, because it's like, I can give you what is the, the research shows is like the general average, but maybe you're on one of the other ends of the spectrum. And like, maybe we, I think you the advice would be much better honed in on like how to make the volume more appropriate for the individual. Um, it's like maybe use eight to fifteen sets as a starting base, and then we you know go up or down from there. But I think that the real tools that build muscle that what I've really come to is that a lot of the real tools that build muscle are what's happening in the gym. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as a coach, I can't always, I can't be in the gym, you know, not, not, not as an online coach, I can't be in the gym with them. And it's like, now I've become heavily focused on developing what I call training skills with my clients. Um, whereas my programs, I always tell my clients, my programs are a recommendation. Um, it's a generalized outline that I draw for them. Um, I want them to stick with the spirit, but I am drawing this up to develop their skills in hopes that they can make these calls on a day-to-day basis for themselves. The, the, the phrase I always tell my clients is, um, you know, I know we're both basketball fans. Steve Kerr can't always tell Steph Curry what is a good shot in the game. He just can't. You know, he, he, he tries to instill fundamental principles, sound principles, helps him develop his decision-making, and he draws up plays to put him in good positions. But at the end of the day, Steph Curry needs to be the one to decide when he's going to shoot, you yeah. know, and that's kind of what I do with my athletes. I, I, I love that. Um, if we could talk about volume for just a minute, I always have to spend a period of time with someone to kind of figure them out. Right. I think we're all kind of that way when they start, you'd mentioned eight to 15 total sets for our listeners, you know, you're talking about per week, right? So someone trained chest, yeah. say they train chest once per week, maybe they would do 15 total sets. But what if someone needs to train chest twice a week? You know what I mean? Like, are you only doing eight total sets one day and then on Monday and then maybe eight again or seven again on Thursday? It's it's one of those things. I personally have seen the best results when it comes to needing to add more volume. I have a lot of people doing 12 to 16 sets per time they train their body part. And if they need to bring it up, they're training it twice a week. So you know, they may train chest on Monday and Thursday, and they may train, you know, 15 sets on Monday and then 15 again on Thursday to bring it up. How do you go about figuring out the volume for each individual? Is it just, 
based on their training history and gathering that information. I know there's a lot of coaches. The reason I know the answer to this, you know, but people are out there listening, thinking, well, how do I know how many sets to have someone train for a body part? You know, it's, it's almost a whole podcast in and of itself. Yeah. I mean, I, their training history will give you a little bit of an indication because usually people aren't going to be running a program that's just driving them into the ground or running a right. program that feels like nothing to them. I, I, to be honest with you, I feel like the majority of bodybuilders, not gen pop, but the majority of bodybuilders can handle volume totals that are higher than what most of the research shows. I think a lot of this research is done on, you know, uh, maybe even if it's more advanced trainees, maybe not as advanced as bodybuilders, you know, bodybuilders, right. I think have, have worked themselves up to a point where that sort of volume is needed. Um, and so, yeah, I, I mean, the realistic thing is it's like, you want to start with a generalized range that they've already been working in higher or lower, depending on what you think. Um, but one thing it's like kind of funny and I, you know, I just mentioned this on a, a recent podcast for the first time, like ever, uh, a couple of weeks ago, um, I, had somebody apply to work with me and he didn't like anything about the plan I gave him. He didn't like the training and didn't like the diet. I was like, Hey man, this is just a starting spot. Like we, you know, and I even said it to him and we, we eventually decided to go like different ways. Cause I was like, he did. And I, but I even kind of told him, I said, the first diet and training program that I give somebody is like the least important one I'm ever going to give them because right. you know, I don't, know them you know i have their history but i haven't really worked with them haven't examined them on a week-to-week -week basis the first diet let's be real people don't want to hear this because but the first diet and training program you give somebody is your best guess of yeah. what they need right now and then what the real magic happens with when you observe the changes and then you make changes you know in response um and so it's like um i think you kind of just need to lay out a program that is conservative in the direction that you feel it needs to go and then observe. And then week to week, it starts to morph and evolve into what you want it to be. Yeah. I, I usually, when I send someone a new plan, I say, Hey, I need you to follow this to a T for two weeks so we can watch and I can get feedback from you to see what happens. And then we'll see about, you know, if we need that food, how much food, or if we, you know what I mean? So it's always, it's, you're right. I think that's perfect. And I don't care who you are. It's any coach's best first guess. So anyone that acts like they're not guessing on the first try, like you're, you're making your best <laughs> educated guess on the information they give you. So, um, yeah, let, let's, let's talk a little bit about RPE scales. You had brought that up. Um, you know, generally for people listening that aren't familiar with an RPE scale, go ahead and explain kind of what that is. And then what are your thoughts on using those? So I'm going to put this caveat that I work almost solely in the in the bodybuilding realm right. so it's like i think that a lot of things that are really popular now you know um rpe scales heavy focus on progressive overload things like that i think that they tend to work best for beginner and intermediate lifters yeah um i think that rpe scales and heavy focus on progressive overload is like you know it's a great great way to grow for a beginner and intermediate lifter but i think as you get more advanced those things become obsolete or you know for the most part um because you know as you start to well first off can i just back up and say like i think that there's phases to a lifter's lifting career you know beginning phase let's use the term progressive overload that's the way you you add 
muscle. The term progressive overload in its most simplest terms is going to be making the muscle do more work than it is used to. And, you know, some ways that's adding load, doing more sets, you know, doing more reps, uh, whatever it may be. Um, and so, of course, in the early stages, progressive overload, right? You just, you add more weight to the bar every week, you know, I remember yeah. the feeling of slapping some more tens on there and just going for it. I mean, that, that stage is real good for the first five years. Yeah. It starts to really slow down after five years. It'll probably carry you into eight years. Um, by 10 years, man, adding five pounds to the bar. I mean, yeah, you could do it on like squats and deadlifts, but I mean, are you adding five pounds per week to a barbell curl after 10 years? You know right, I mean? right. Um, the percentage jump on like, a let's say a dumbbell curl, right? If you want to go from the 45s to the 50s, the strength increase percentage of that is massive. You know what I mean? Yep. Um, so, uh, you know, at a certain point you start to edge out so that, you know, progressive overload starts to phase out, right? It doesn't just like, you just can't do it every week. So then you start to, of course, like add more sets, add a rep or two here, you know, you, you kind of milk that for all it's worth then. Um, and then eventually you get to a point where you can't add more sets. Like you're doing too much volume already. So then you start with more like intensity techniques, you know, uh, supersets, drop sets, things to like force the intensity without adding a lot more time to your workout and like that. But then at a certain point, you just can't recover from all that stuff. Right. Um, so I think the final phase of a lifter's career is form adjustments. Um, how do I, and, and it may seem, it, it is small. It is so small. It's like such a, but like you look at like a dumbbell lateral raise, at the beginning of a lifter's career, it's like they start off with like, um, you know, maybe 15 pound dumbbells on a dumbbell lateral raise, you know, and it's like, then they'll go 20, 25, 30, maybe 35 up to 40 to 50, depending on how strong the person is, you know, it's like, and then they'll get to the point where it's like, okay, I'm adding more sets. I'm doing five sets of lateral raises with those heavier weights. And then it's, uh, you know, I'll do things like drop sets on the dumbbell lateral raise. And then I usually find that around like you're, 12 of training 10 to 15 in that range then people are like maybe i need to go back down to 25s <laughs> you know what i mean um and it's like holy shit i'm actually using my my medial belt on my lateral raise with these with these 25s or even 20s you know what i mean um and the thing is the medial delt doesn't know the difference between the 40 and the 25 pounder in fact you are progressively overloading by dropping back down to the 25s because the tension is actually being placed where it's supposed to be placed. So yeah. you have now progressively overloaded. Um, and by the way, you are reducing your, um, you're reducing your recovery burden yes. because it takes an awful lot of energy expenditure to hoist up the 45s. You use a lot of auxiliary muscles, a lot of mental and physical energy. Whereas if you can do a controlled 25 pound dumbbell lateral raise, um, it, it is very targeted on the medial delt and a lot less, I would say, auxiliary energy expenditure. Um, and so, like, I, I do a lot of – so, yeah, I, I guess I would say with that, which kind of brings me to more of the, the things that I do now that are not as popular, I do, I do a lot of ultra-high reps. A lot of my clients are doing sets in the 20 to 40 rep range. Yeah. Um, and some people are like, oh, why are you doing that so much? It's not really necessary. Um, it, I think that a lot of 
people. So what I've started to do is like, I've tried to get to my clients. So this, you know, towards the end of the, I apologize. I'm going on uh, off, off no, no, the this topic is perfect. here. So if I start with the beginning phase of a lifter's career with progressive overload, right. And then, you know, then they transition to intensity techniques and adding volume. Then the end of the career is form improvement. I'm trying to insert this at the beginning of someone's career um, as soon as I can. Now, it's not always, hey, just use better form. That's not always the case. I don't know about you, but I, I was not really capable of feeling my medial delts very well. And pecs, pecs, oh man, yeah. you know my struggles with that. Um, it's not always, you know, I, I always used great form in my pec training. Um, but I still wasn't feeling my pecs work. And so this is where I branch off with the high, ultra high reps. People push back on me using ultra high reps because it's inefficient. It's not necessary. It doesn't build muscle as well. You know, the 40 rep range and stuff. Um, you need to look at like, once again, I say effective reps when I was talking earlier. Um, I don't think a lot of people know how to perform effective reps. And it's not actually due to them not wanting to or trying to. It's that they haven't developed that skill. Training is a skill. Um, and I'm going to use an example from my own physique. Uh, I played basketball all through grade school and high school and college. What is everything in basketball? Tricep extension. I'm dribbling tricep extension. You know, I'm just extending at the elbow <laughs> thousands and thousands of times. Did I have huge triceps? No, because there was no load to it. And, so I didn't grow. I didn't have big triceps when I quit playing basketball after college. Um, but what I was doing is, man, I am now very neurologically efficient at this movement, right? Yeah. This is a very, my, my, my motor units and my triceps are firing when I need them to. So I walk into the gym one day, decide I'm going to be a bodybuilder. And I put load on this movement that is also familiar to me. What grows the fastest, right? Yeah. My triceps. I try to put a bench press. I try to go to a bench press. This is an unfamiliar movement to me, but I'm tricep extending. Yeah. So my triceps are like, hey, I know how this goes. You know, my triceps take over. Um, I am neurologically uncoordinated when it comes to pectoral training. Yeah. Um, it is my, my pecs are thousands of reps behind my triceps. So when I place load upon it, it's not doing anything. And the answer is usually just add more weight. Well, that's just a recipe for bigger triceps for me. <laughs> um, and even in the eight to 12 rep range. So when you look at the research, so what I'm doing with my training might be outside of the box by other people's standard, but it's still very evidence-based because when you look at the research, uh, the research clearly shows that the heavier the load, used on any exercise the less control you have over where the tension goes or what muscle actually does the lifting um you will just defer to your own natural neurological tendencies so it's like if i do a one rep max on my bench press that's going to be a whole lot of delts and front tri triceps and front delts um and very little pec activation then if i go to a five rep max right um, I get a little bit more pec activation to 10. Um, if I go to 40 reps, I can really choose to use my delts. I can, yeah. I can, it's a light enough load. 
And so what is that doing? Um, one, the research does show you can get just as much growth out of sets of 30, assuming they're very intense, as you can sets of 8 to 10. Yeah. Um, so one, in a set of 30, I can actually use my pecs. So I'm going to get more growth from my target area because I'm actually using them. And I'm also developing that neurological coordination to be able to use this. I'm, I'm allowing my pecs to catch up on reps yep. compared to my triceps. So it's not a short process, but over the course of five years, um, you know, I'm just throwing out five years as an example, but over the course of, you know, two, three, four, five years, um, I will get more, you know, coordinated. I can fire my pecs when I need to, I can engage them in various exercises. And then my moderate rep ranges and heavier lows become more effective when I do use them in my pec training. So what I do is I do a lot of things that are, when I'm bringing up somebody's weaker areas, we're doing, instead of heavy loads and a lot of volume, we're doing, well, we're still doing probably a lot of volume, but we're doing very light loads. Like, um, even like when I was before, right before I had my health issues, one thing I was doing to bring up my side delts is like, I would have two delt days. One day was a much more traditional delt day, overhead press, you know, lateral raise, reverse pec deck, a lot of eight to 15 rep ranges. My second delt day was five sets of laterals in for 30 reps. Um, you know, I was taking five pounders and I was raising them up and I was holding it there until I felt the tension placed where it needed to be. And I didn't lower it until I came back down and then I'd come back up and I would repeat and then when I would get to my second delt day, what do you know? I can actually like engage in this process because I've done so many reps in that regard. So, you know, it's like, I know people really lash out at some of the things I have people doing, but it's very, in my opinion, it's even more evidence-based for what we're trying to do. <laughs> and you know what? I, I bet people lash out against it because for so many decades and decades and decades, it's all about how hard and heavy you can train. I mean, there's a thousand fucking shirts out there talking about train hard and heavy. And there's all, you know, to, you know, you've got to be masculine. You've got to be hardcore like this and that. And the thing is, like you talked about when someone starts off, progressive overload works great in the beginning. A lot of shit works great in the beginning, but if someone starts off the way that you're talking now with more higher reps, um, is their longevity going to be better? So that's something else people need to think about because now you and I are getting older our clients are getting older. Their their age is scaling up. So now we've got plenty of clients in their in our forties and maybe even fifties. And we don't, you know, I don't have a ton of clients in my twenties like I used to. So my point is now we're getting people that have a longer training age. So maybe it's it's listening to some of these things that you've talked about is very important. You and I have never really talked about training together uh, as far as like these topics. We've never talked about that. I've been implementing things like high reps, pre exhaustion stuff like that for a few years. Most of it started with me because I my body was starting to break down from all the heavy training. So I had to find different ways. And I found it works out with my people that have been working out less than four years, for example. It teaches them that mind-muscle connection. But you're talking about catching up on the reps. And I like that. I've never thought about it from that standpoint. Getting body parts to catch up on those reps, that makes a lot of sense. I've, I've never really heard anyone analyze it that way so you might be one of the first really to kind of think of it in that sense well i mean when you look at it most people that get into the sport whatever they were doing before the sport you're going to give you an indication of what muscle group is 
going to grow, you know? Yeah. They ran track. They ran track. Those legs are about to blow up. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, <laughs> it, it really just depends on what they were doing. If, you know, they, they were they were rowing on a boat in a kayak or something like that. You know, we might have a big back on our hands. It's like, it, uh, it and so it's like, um, it, it's just, uh, and, and I don't know if you've ever coached any former gymnasts, they grow everywhere because yep. they have such great coordination use of their body. Um, and it's like, whenever you put a load on that, now they're going to blow up. And, um, you know, for me, you know, interestingly enough, my, my clientele has actually gotten younger in the last few years here. Um, I coach so many guys in their twenties now, but for me, what led me there wasn't really a longevity thing. It was just trying to get my, my damn pecs to grow, yeah. <laughs> you know? And I started thinking, and, and honestly, I started thinking about it in terms of my basketball career. You know, I was like, I was like, this is just such a familiar movement pattern. You know what I mean? It's like, it's just been repeated over and over and over again. Um, and so it's like, but this, the pressing was just so unfamiliar, uh, in, in basketball. Um, and, and my second best muscle group legs, you know, what else am I using in basketball legs? Um, it's just, it's not a coincidence that the two areas that I had been using with zero load placed on them, when they place a load on them, then they're going to blow up because I can place that tension there. I love it. Let's, um, how much time do you have? I know we're right at an hour. Do you have another five or 10 minutes? Yeah, let's go for it. Okay. So I think what we should do, I think we should go ahead and talk about the different changes in nutrition and the different approaches that you, that you've used to think outside the box. When did you really start to, when did you start to see that? When did you start to see, you know, was it in the early days with, with peaking, but when, when did you start to think outside the box with nutrition? I think it was pretty, pretty early on. Uh, I would say 2011 is when I really started. That, that's when I started doing things a little bit differently with peaking. Um, I, I, the, the first thing that caused me to think outside the box was peaking because front loads were very popular. Yeah. When I first started coaching, when I first started coaching, I was using them too. Um, me too. And I would load people over the course of the weekend, you know, a week out, right? And then you drop carbs down and then, uh, you know, or you, you taper them down, you know? Um, and I thought they always looked best after that initial load a week mm -hmm. out in a front load. Um, you know, in a front load, you, you load a week out and then you taper the carbohydrates down. Um, they always looked best. And you couldn't, I don't, I don't know if you noticed about this front load. It's like, rarely can you recapture that look uh there's something different about food coming up as opposed to coming down yeah um i i don't i've never claimed to know exactly what it is i've suspected that it has to do with like most mechanisms within the body have compensation mechanisms right yeah you know it's like you restrict you restrict food and then you know, your body has mechanisms to store more and extract more calories from food and you restrict carbohydrates and your body creates more room for glycogen storage. It's like everything has this like rebound. And I've suspected it's kind of the same for intramuscular water storage. Um, it's almost like if you're going from this like depleted spot to this full spot, you've taken advantage of that super compensation mechanism. And then it's like, you know, if you let it 
leak out, so to speak. You can't just recapture it within a few days. So that's right. that's been my suspicion. But that was my first time. I was like, everybody's using these front loads, but it, like, I want people to look like they do a week out when I'm loading them right now. Yeah. So I started using like all back loads. I started tinkering with things, right? And I started tinkering with like three day loads, two day loads. And I kind of started to notice that people would look even fuller if, you know, and, and, and I, I kind of used that like compensation mechanism that I was already kind of in the frame of. It was like, what happens if I just load them in one day? And I, that's yeah. when I did the rapid backload for the first first time. And so I think that was like my first instance where I was like, I don't need to do what everyone else is doing. I, I'll, in fact, it, I don't separate myself from other people. If I do what everybody is doing, um, I need to do something different and better. I, I remember the front loads, I would load a lot of people on a Tuesday, right? And then they would train Wednesday, Thursday, take Friday off. And by the time, you know, I would load them, I found myself having to load them so fucking hard on a Tuesday. And I've talked about this when I've presented numerous times, Josh Hobie, Matt Holcomb, 2000 carbs on a fucking Tuesday. <laughs> and you load a lot of people on 1200, 1100, we'll pick the number, like different ranges, but over a thousand on the Friday, the day before the show. Well, I found myself early on loading people on 2000 just to try and hold somewhat of that fullness. Right. And then it started to dawn on me. You can't, you can't, they would look good. Usually after 2000 carbs, it was always like two days after because they're spilled as shit yeah, the next day, <laughs> but about two days, two days after that evening. Um, and so in my mind, I started to try and like move it up and move it up. And then it's just one of those things. There weren't a lot of people doing the things that you were doing. There weren't a lot of people doing the 2000 carbs on a Tuesday. And man, people did not like that because one, they had, they were scared shitless to try stuff like that. Um, especially a Friday load at 1100 carbs. And I remember you would post when you're doing it, <laughs> two gallons of water, you know, five grams of salt or seven, whatever. It just depended on the, and that scared the shit out of people because everyone was so adapted to cut your water Friday and just start hammering food, right? Like the old school way. Yeah. Um, you got a lot of shit for that from some of the top names in the sport. And I'm not just talking about the assistants. I'm talking about natural bodybuilding coaches, right? Um, has that died down? You like, you don't get any shit over that. I mean, it's been fucking 13 years now since you started doing that. No, you know what I was telling my wife recently is like, um, <laughs> It's a good thing and a bad thing. To be honest with you, I don't get a lot of shit for anything anymore. Yeah. Because um, like, you're old man, I, I think you're old man up, Wilson. I, I think I've built up some equity. <laughs> you know, so there's like some trust there. And it's like, I don't, um, I, I, I sometimes kind of wish that like I would get more questions, but a lot of times now it's like, it's like, oh, he knows what he's doing. Just go for it. Um, yeah. And like, but uh, like the other day, somebody was asking me like why I wasn't a big fan of fasted cardio for natural bodybuilders. And I was like going to the, you know, it was a client. I was like, I wrote out like the difference between like, um, you know, fat oxidation and lipolysis, like, you know, like, you, you know, the research, like with fasting cardio, it'll uh, increase lipolysis, but not necessarily fat oxidation. And I, I was like, man, it felt good to like, you know, get into it a little explain. bit, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like I was like, it felt nice. <laughs> and, um, and it's not to say like, but I don't know. It, yeah, I don't really get a lot of shit for anything anymore. We'll see if that changes if I really start talking about this training stuff more. But I do think that like a lot of lifters are just really focused on the wrong stuff these days when it comes to training. I just think they're they're focused on stuff that's going to, you know, it, it, it's not wrong. It's not wrong. You know what I mean? But I think it's just 
slightly misguided stuff. It's not like they're headed in the wrong direction, but if they're, you know, if they, they, sh they should be here, but they're kind of like looking over here. You know what I mean? It's just slightly off. Yeah. I think the, the biggest takeaway, and, and I'm trying to put myself in the, the shoes of the listener right now and the other coaches out there that are, they're trying to grow and they're trying to improve. Um, the biggest takeaway to me from this hearing you speak is it, if you want to stand out, if you want to do your own thing, if you want to learn more, if you want to progress, you can't just stick to what's always worked. You've got to be able to try new things. And if you want to be, you know, Cliff, you're the perfect example somebody that's kind of been a trailblazer and led the charge on a lot of this stuff. And you've built that hell of a business over time. Um, you've got to be able to think outside the box and take some risks like that, that pretty much, I mean, I could say that defines you. Would you agree with that? Like thinking outside the box constantly? Yeah, it's a big part of, of honestly, yeah, it's a big part of who I am personally. I, I you know, I, I just always kind of felt like, you know, uh, <laughs> but, you know, perfect example is like, I would even say when I was young, I have two brothers. Both my brothers are very smart guys. Um you know, super high SAT scores. One of them is a nuclear pharmacist now. And they're just, you know, they're, they're both very smart guys. Personally, I always kind of felt like I was the dumbest brother. <laughs> and, and and that's not to say I felt dumb, but I definitely didn't feel like I was on their level. And I always felt like, um, you know, I know there's people that are more intelligent than my myself. And so, so it's like, but sometimes maybe I can just put together the larger pieces of things that maybe other people aren't seeing and get a leg up rather than just um, for lack of a better term, like regurgitating what's already been done, you know? Uh, so yeah. Shout out to my brothers. <laughs> yeah, uh, man, this has been such a great episode. I, I know you're busy. Thanks for taking the time. If you're listening, anything you want to learn about Cliff, his books, his contact information, you want to re reach out for coaching. We have all the links in the show notes. So wherever you're listening, um, and then finally, we just ask, please leave a review. We're working to grow this podcast. I think this is episode 15. We're going to be dropping a lot of these. So please share this with a friend. If you found any kind of value, we're going to be bringing the heat with a lot of good knowledge and information. Uh, Cliff, thanks for coming on, man. We'll we'll have you again on here soon. And I always appreciate you having me on, especially on this topic. Thank you. Yeah. All right, guys, for myself and Cliff, we're out of here. Talk to you soon.